The Tom Woods Show, episode 1658. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by now you've probably noticed that news about the virus is almost always fact-free hysteria these days. So you need my brand new free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About the Lockdown. Go pick it up at wrongaboutlockdown.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. Delighted to have Michael Rechtenwald back on the show. You really need to listen to all our episodes together. They're all great. They're all linked at tomwoods.com slash 1658. He is retired as a professor at New York University, and he was a lifelong Marxist until very recently. And not only has he repudiated that, but he has embraced the Misesian worldview, uh, Ludwig von Mises and the uh, tradition of Austro-libertarianism, he's just fantastic, an incredibly open-minded person. Nobody at this stage in his career changes ideological outlooks. That just doesn't happen. So he's just an honest person and very, very smart. And we're going to have a lot to talk about today, in particular, his brand new book, Beyond Woke. So Michael Rechtenwald, welcome back. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me again. You are such a patient man. The day we're set to record, my Mac just conks out. Like, that is it. It has has made its sacrifice for the Tom Woods show, and then that's it. And I managed to get this new one up and running and the software installed and recording for the podcast. I consider it a miracle. And and also your patience is part of that that miracle. I'm amazed you have it running. (laughs) Me too. The more we comment on it, the more I'm afraid we're jinxing it. So I better not say anything about that. So the book is called Beyond Woke, and as we were noting before recording, there's no subtitle. And in a way, I like this bucking of the trend because in academia, of course, everything's in the subtitle. It's some catchy kind of goofball title, and then there's a three-paragraph long subtitle that tells you what the book is actually about. So Beyond Woke, of course, is a reference to this concept of being so-called woke. And the idea there is that Frankly, unlike others, you are alert to what's really going on in the world, namely uh, social injustice of all kinds. And that always struck me as a, well, frankly, irritating expression because to me, I don't think you have to be particularly so-called woke or unusually astute to imbibe what is basically the conventional wisdom on almost everything that you would get in college. Any sociology course is going to teach you all the things that supposedly you have to be some particularly wise and awake person to perceive. I think to the contrary, to be really woke means that you see through these things. You see how superficial they are. So maybe that's what you mean by beyond woke. Yes, I'm talking about the idea that wokeness itself is a kind of sleepwalking because it's completely based on a compulsion by a group mentality to signal virtue with reference to various issues. And this is so absurd, as you've seen. I mean, you can see these uh, woke uh, virtue signaling going on all over the place, especially Twitter, where you see people saying things like, you know, they're taking women and men and making them into acronyms for uh, some sort of statement about the virus and, uh, Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, so I mean, beyond woke is to suggest that there's something better than wokeness. And uh, that's what I'm getting at. There's something much better than wokeness. And a real moral moral choice or a real moral uh, attitude is actually not to be subject to compulsion, but to act out of freedom. 
So wokeness is a, is a means of crude compulsion to behave a certain way, and so there's nothing moral about it. The uh, subject matter of the book is somewhat varied, but of course the, the theme, it pivots around this idea of wokeness and the problems with it. We get some material on your experiences at NYU, but I've talked to you about that before and I, I don't want to dwell on that too long. But I, I do want to say something about your ideological background because in here, this is the first time I've seen you, maybe I wasn't paying attention before, but actually use the word communist to describe what your views were for at least 10 years. Now, you, you wouldn't be a communist in, in the, uh, let's say, Angela Davis mold where she was actually covering up Soviet and, and Eastern European crimes you know, stuff like that. That was never your bag. So how would you describe who you were for a long time? Well, I would describe it as what, what is termed inside the communist uh, movement or whatever you want to call it, milieu, as left communist. I, I, did, I thought that the Bolshevik revolution was a, a usurpation of the working class movement to overthrow the, the capitalist system, which, by the way, there really wasn't a large one yet, and that, you know, the institution of a party overall and then a state overall was, a, was an ex- absolute bastardization of the whole concept of Marxism. But, uh, you know, since I've come to a more a, a entirely civil libertarian standpoint, I, I recognize that there is no other way. It will always end up that way. It's inevitable that... There has to be totalitarianism because you have to suppress, you must suppress various elements. You have to suppress free enterprise, of course, which means you, you suppress all kinds of things like innovation, individual freedom to uh, produce as an you know, independent producer. You, you obviously suppress entrepreneurialism, but you have to suppress, uh, you have to create an ideological homogeneity, homogeneity as well. So you have to suppress any role dissenting viewpoints, which of course happened uh, and continues to happen in China and elsewhere. So um, I was like, a, a, what? A, this sounds like an oxymoron to anybody that hasn't been uh, on the far left in the Marxist realm, but I was a libertarian communist. I know people are probably uh, laughing or rising. No, but I, I know what that means roughly because I've heard of libertarian socialism. I know what they're trying to say. Yeah, they're trying to say that it is about the uh, free association of uh, the collective to produce without uh, any sort of compulsion by the state, that it becomes the state. And in fact, if everyone's the state, then there is no state as such. So, you know, that was a very utopian idea. Um, and utopianism is really the, the root of the problem, I think, because whenever you have utopian idealism, you're necessarily suppressing and oppressing and repressing any kinds of uh, real uh, solutions to things. And so utopianism ends up as as totalitarian, inevitably. In your chapter number 12, a critique of social justice ideology, thinking through Marx and Nietzsche, let's leave Nietzsche out. It's interesting to see, even though that would be great, but what I find more shocking, I'm not shocked that Nietzsche would be opposed to social justice ideology. That's stands to reason, but it's interesting the way you uh, analyze Marx with with regard to this, because I'm sure these people think of themselves as being inspired by Marx. Yeah, they think they're consistent with Marx, but it's absolutely inconsistent with Marx. 
despite Marx's, you know, fundamental flaws, uh, they have, uh, they're really betraying the, the, I would say the orthodox or traditional uh, objectives of the left, which is what, the, what Marx would call uh, universal human emancipation and not simply some jockeying for position on a privilege hierarchy, um, which is all that social justice amounts to. And basically it amounts to an inversion of the existing hierarchy and not an egalitarianism, which is really what Marx's critique would be of it. It's, it's kind of like a kind of, uh, it would be more apt in the feudalistic period, although uh, movement along uh, the hierarchy was not really available, but it really is about this notion of gaining and, and taking away privilege, quote unquote. And Marx had nothing to do with that idea um, his his theory was that the the any injustice that existed in the world was based in an economic system, and that he believed that the the, the working class uh, was systemically disadvantaged thanks to this concept of exploitation. Uh, exploitation being the idea of the expropriation of value at the point of production, not distribution, and not privilege distribution by any, any measure. And Marx would have, even Marx had a notion of the idea of class envy, which he did not approve of. Uh, this idea that you have to envy and, you know, that there's a kind of uh, constant resentment to, to draw Nietzsche in. Unfortunately, I can't avoid it. Uh, a constant sort of envy and resentment toward those who have supposedly have more. But in the, in the social justice realm, this more is merely uh, a rather, uh, shall we say, it, it's purely ideological. It has nothing to do with material reality as Marx would see it. I want to ask you a couple things that it's really not good of me as a host to do because I, I want to promote your book and I want people to read Beyond Woke and it has my highest recommendation. In fact, I even created an easy link for people to get to the Amazon page. I actually created tomwoods.com slash woke. That's how much, it, they just type that in. It takes them right to the page. No, no searching, no whatever takes them right there. But I want to ask you a couple things. If you were writing this now and you were adding an additional essay to it, yeah. in light of the virus situation, yeah. how would you modify the thesis, not modify the thesis, let's say, but expand on it in light of current circumstances? Yeah, I think that I would, um, the, the, the virus or the pandemic is another case in which wokeness has utterly corrupted the, the discourse. And you've been writing about this very well in your, um, your, your newsletter. Uh, now, do you notice Michael Rechtenwald subscribes to the old man's newsletter that I keep hectoring the rest of you about? All right, carry on. Sorry. And I also open it and read it. <laughs> yes, even better. Okay. So that, you know, there's, this, there's been nothing but this kind of, uh, there's obviously a lot of virtue signaling going on, of course. And in some cases, the, the, the mask, for example, is nothing but a virtue costume, if you will. Uh, because in many cases, it does nothing. And it merely, ju it just for me, I wear the mask outside. Why? I don't want to be hectored by social justice scolds, you know, and I don't want to be tortured on the sidewalk by these people. So I just go along with the Halloween costume. You know, I, my mask is probably utterly ineffective, but it, it is effective in warding off these pesky people. So that's why I wear it. Uh, I would say that, you know, this thing has been suffused with social justice and woke 
um, jockeying, right? Nothing but trying to be the most so-called concerned, even though there's no evidence, for example, that the lockdown, as your last newsletter, I think, uh, very well elaborated, there's no proof or evidence that lockdowns are superior to anything else. And yet there seems to be this desideratum on the part of, the, of, of everybody, you know, left of the center, that lockdowns are really a virtue and we must lock people down. And those who don't accept being locked down are, are absolutely selfish and they're just, they're just horrendous people. They're morally corrupt and they're morally, you know, suspect entirely. So it's been nothing. I mean, it's the, the discourse has been completely corrupted by this whole woke ideology. Now, the second unfair question I'm going to ask you is, looking back on your old worldview, are you saying today that there was nothing of any merit in it? Or do you think that there is nevertheless something in what you used to believe that can indeed enlighten us today and that, you know, people you associate with now maybe could bear to hear? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've often said that I have taken many of the tools of the left and used it against them. Uh, for example, the critique of ideology, which we've talked about before. Uh, I do think there is a ruling class ideology, which Marx, you know, and Marxists always uh, lament and counter. But uh, like Hermann Hoppe, I think it actually has to do with the statists and the status, uh, so we say, extensions or media mouthpieces who's, uh, who are constantly propagating the state's viewpoint. And the state is a broad category for me. It includes those actors and, and corporations and others that are, uh, that are in collusion with it. And uh, so I see it as a corporate state, if you will. And I talk about this in the book. I call it corporate socialism. And um, so I do think that the class analysis is really valid, but the class system is not what it's uh, is not what it's made out to be under Marxism. It's mistaken. So class class analysis, ideological analysis, and 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 several other things that don't come to mind right off the top of my head, but definitely I've retained and I can't really get rid of those analytical tools that I've learned to use. So there is there isn't like it isn't like I had a whole I don't need to be, what, what would we say, um, uh, I don't need to have a debriefing and, uh, you know, have a complete uh, ideological uh, overhaul because I think uh, some of the things that I thought just have to be reapplied in a different way, and I've done that. How would you respond to the kind of argument we hear from time to time? People will say, people on the left will say, you know, you people who are opposed to the left you're always complaining that your perspectives aren't uh, represented in the university and that the experts are all against you and that the professors are, you know, that the academic departments are all against you. But look, that's a function of the fact that we're smarter and, and you're wrong. That's why. It's not that you're being persecuted in any way or kept out of these departments. The reason that leftists dominate everything is that we're smarter and we're right. Yeah, I think that's ludicrous, and I'll, I'll explain what I think is wrong with it. First of all, let's say that academic discourse and academia and scholarship in very, whatever field, the sciences, technology, social sciences, and humanities, is a Darwinian struggle for the best ideas to win. 
I will take that as the premise. The problem is the competitors are precluded in advance, many of them, so that what happens is you have ridiculous notions passing for for absolute uh, for orthodoxy, like there's 72 genders, like like there's no no connection between gender and biology and physiology and evolutionary history and so on and so on and so forth. So what happens is by winnowing by you know they have winnowed out and uh, more or less uh, precluded so many standpoints that the most patent nonsense passes for valid. Uh, notion for valid uh, conclusions and and premises really that you can't even there's so many sacred cows that you can't even critique or even ask a question about without being dismissed or actually thrown out uh, which was the case in mine in my case I was basically thrown out I mean I was pushed out I didn't go I didn't go without some compensation but I was pushed out because I actually dared to question sacred cows. So it's absolutely a religious institution at this point, is what we're dealing with. It is not a free competition for the, uh, to see which, uh, you know, it's not a, a cultural or natural selection of the best ideas by any stretch. There's a kind of, there's so much collusion ideologically such that anything that's different, any standpoint that is oppositional or at least critical is, is absolutely precluded. Now, this again, this is something that's not uh, directly asking you about a particular chapter, but it does draw from the subject matter. If you were a university president, oh my gosh, would I not wish that on you? But suppose you were, what would you do? Um, what I would do is, first of all, right now what's happened is in the universities, the social justice creed has become the official doctrine. It is actually, it is actually informing all of the policies the pedagogy, uh, the philosophy, and the sort of moral hierarchy, if you will, that's, that's attended upon the university structure. I would, I would get rid of that in terms of, uh, I call this in my book, an essay called Resecularizing the University. And what I mean there is that social justice is a religion. It has completely been, it, it's, it's, it's been infused into everything and it's at the. It's kind of like the moral arbiter of everything in terms of speech, even research, uh, you know, discourse in and out of the classroom, et cetera, et cetera. So what I would do is de- I would debunk that. I would take it from its parapet and put it in pl- place where it belongs. That is amongst every other ideology and competing notion, just like a religious ideology, which shouldn't be thrown out in advance, but should be just one of the possibilities that people might hold but it can't be the official doctrine of state and other universities that don't, that don't advertise or don't uh, presume to be religious institutions. So I would say these policies and this philosophy, these morals, these uh, pedagogical uh, assumptions must be re-examined such that we don't have, we have a kind of super secular, uh, uh, super secularism that oversees everything, but doesn't take a position we're not supposed to have official doctrine and orthodoxy in universities. That, that, that is, that, that, you know, the American Association of University Professors in their 1915 declaration stated that you can't have a, a, a presumed ideology running the, the, the academic community in terms of all the various aspects. So I would absolutely 
you know, ex, ex, extirpate that and get it out of its position and push it down to where it belongs amongst every other position. I, I wouldn't say throw it out, you can't be this. That's, that would be utterly hypocritical. Um, because I am a, a civil libertarian. I believe everybody is able, anybody can believe whatever they want. I mean, and they should be able to express whatever beliefs they have. Absolutely. The question is, why is one particular ideological standpoint the dominant one and the complete overarching and arbitrator of everything? That has to stop. Your chapter eight is called Shaming and Shunning. And sometimes I hear from libertarians that we can't really object when people shame or shun other people because if we had a society with an extremely minimal or entirely absent state, we would need some way for us in society to indicate displeasure with some points of view in some people. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that non-coercively is shaming and shunning. Now, I personally think that's an, a very short-sighted way to look at the situation. Oh, this is a non-coercive uh, approach because I my view is a lot of the people in the universities who act like this and who who prevent people from speaking and who make people's lives miserable if you put them in charge it would not be non coercive from that point on if they were ever they are yeah. yeah so so just elaborate on your views on this okay well it's a herd it's a herd mentality that uh, basically makes anathema individuals who don't properly subscribe to certain positions. And this is not on a moral basis. This isn't based on some actions they've taken. It's based on any statements they've made that aren't uh, suitable to, for example, their notions. You know, for example, you can't have, uh, you can't have a speaker such as, uh, what was his name, the um, co-author of The Bell Curve. It's, it's, it's eluding me right now. Uh, Charles Murray, Richard Hernstein. Yeah, Murray. I mean, for example, Murray's a perfectly legitimate scholar, and yet he's not even allowed to speak anywhere because he'll be utterly shut down. That's the kind of herd mentality I'm talking about. And the thing is about it in the context of most institutions like universities is that they have the power of the state behind them. So they have the power of the institution in their pocket. So they're acting from a position not simply of uh, moral uh, condemnation from a standpoint of, you know, you've done something wrong. They're acting from a point of coercion with the power of the institution behind them, and they know it because they're using their so-called uh, oppressed status as a weapon. They've weaponized their identities in order to persecute anybody that steps out of line. It's a power play, and they have the power of the institution behind them when they're doing it. And that's what I'm talking about in that essay, Shaming and Shunning. When somebody walks away from this book, he walks away, you know, having encountered a lot of ideas he had maybe may not have been familiar with before and personalities and problems in society. What, if any, is the message you want people to leave with? Like, what do we do with this information? Well, I want them to be beyond woke. <laughs> get, yeah. Basically, the, the, the sales pitch is the same as the, as the thesis, get beyond woke. <laughs> and uh, the idea is I want them to see it for what it is, to feel free, because frankly, a lot of people are carrying around a burden of compulsion that is being placed on them by woke uh, totalitarianism or what I call snowflake totalitarianism. Uh, they're walking around with a burden that they and, a, and, a, and a, an attendant guilt complex. You know, anybody that has anything 
has been trained to feel guilty about it. And this is very prominent in university so that you're constantly self-flagellating. You know, it's like a bunch of monks in a monastery in the 13th century, really. And it's ridiculous. What I want them to do is feel free. Feel free to think. Feel free to express their ideas, even if they think they're not popular, because that's the kind of ideas that have to be protected. Um, so that's what I want them to come up with. I want them to have a libertarian spirit, not just a libertarian state or non-state or a libertarian ideology. I want them to have a libertarian spirit. And I want to say one more thing about this book. It is not academic. It's the uh, If I had any criticisms of the last two books, Google Archipelago and Springtime for Snowflakes, despite the title of the, fir- of the latter there, it, the, the, there was too much academic jargon. I've basically gotten rid of all that and just I think it's pretty plain language. Most of it's written in a journalistic, um, not style, but a journalistic register of comprehension and, uh, you know, common understanding. So that's that's what I've tried to do here. So this is kind of like springtime for snowflakes without all the jargon and all the, you know, high theory and so on and so forth. I can attest to that. You can breeze right through it. And each chapter is self-contained, so you can skip around. But right. it's, it's, it covers all kinds of things. It's, it's also corporate America, which we've talked about, and right. Google, and uh, obviously the whole social justice thing, and Marxism, and your experiences, and what's going on in the university. It's woke it's, capitalism, too. It's, woke capitalism, right? Yeah. That's also in there. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, it's almost, I think, when I read like a Fox News level critique of what's going on in the universities. I really think it's worse than they think it is. Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, do you feel that way? Yes. I've watched a few things that, you know, I thought, oh, are they kidding me? Like, for example, there was this, uh, not just in universities, but in in the elementary and secondary education, where it's completely rife, by the way, and completely dominating everything. Um, I heard, for example, Laura Ingram complaining about the uh, abolition of father-daughter dances because it was gender something, you know. And if I said, if you think that's bad, go to look at the uh, James Damore lawsuit against Google and see that they had a, a person who identifies as a wingless dragonfly kin, okay? That's their so, so-called sexual identity or their identity in general. So <laughs> it is, you know, they, they don't get the extent and the absolute, like, absurd length to which this has gone. Exactly. And only an insider can know that stuff. And that's in large part what you're going to learn about in Beyond Woke. So tomwoods.com slash woke is the link to go get this thing. Before we wrap up, I want to tell people that you are hopping on board at my invitation as a faculty member at libertyclassroom.com. And you are already at work on the first of what I hope will be numerous courses from you. Can you say a word about what that will be about? Yes, um, I'll put it in really simple terms here. I would say that I'm studying, we're going to go through the th- what I consider the three main, uh, sort of the, the tripartite head of what we'll call cultural Marxism, uh, which is, I think, has come from postmodern theory, the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, and what is called cultural studies in the university. All of them have been informed by Marxism in some sense. They're all leftist. And I go into the, um, I'm going into the schools of thought there and how, who are the contributors and what are their precursors and what, what are their actual ideas and how do they connect to the present tense? 
Uh, so it'll be a, a deep dive, but you'll come up for air with something, something that makes sense with reference to the present moment, something that is a tool that you can use. I don't believe in any sort of arcane uh, you know, pursuits anymore. I think it's really d- ridiculous in a self-perpetuating discourse that goes on inside of universities that I, I think it's just ridiculous. It's a, a sort of circular, uh, well, you might say firing squad, <laughs> but uh, there's a circular logic about it. It doesn't have to go anywhere. Well, I, I make it go somewhere as well. Well, tremendous. We're very much looking forward to that. So that'll be coming up at libertyclassroom.com. But for right now, we want you to head over to tomwoods.com slash woke. I'll have links also to previous conversations with Michael Rechtenwald up on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1658. So uh, you folks should go check those out. Michael, thanks so much for your time as always and best of luck with the book. Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. All right, folks, as we head into the weekend, I have something that some of you folks out there, I strongly suspect, may enjoy. Any of you who enjoy tabletop role-playing games, particularly uh, Dungeons & Dragons, there is a brand new podcast called Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. It's at rollinbonespodcast.com, rolling with no G, rollinbonespodcast.com. He shares stories from his gaming table and converses with everyone from friends old and new to fellow podcasters and online personalities to industry legends like Shane Hensley and Larry Elmore. Now you can join Ryan at his new website, rollinbonespodcast.com. Check that out. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1658. Something tells me I have some role-playing people in my audience. Well, then this is perfect for you. And of course, how did he get this shout out for me? Well, he got his hosting through my link, which means he's entitled to all these benefits, including getting some nice targeted traffic to his site right out of the gate. So if you would like to get benefits from me, and there are many, the publicity is just one, for your site that you're thinking about starting, check out tomwoods.com slash publicity before you do it so you get your hosting through me, which means you get a great price plus my free bonuses. So tomwoods.com slash publicity is the link for that, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.